Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. Remember, you can hear our entire back catalogue of episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and of course our SoundCloud. So please tell your colleagues and friends and hit that subscribe button. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome back to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. It's, it's very nice to be back. Uh, my name's Ian Lewins. I'm a paediatric emergency medicine consultant based in Derby. Uh, and it's my great pleasure to introduce two guests to you today. Um, firstly, we've got uh, Julia Avery, Avery, sorry, who's a medical student uh, based in St George's in London. Good morning, Julia. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. And uh, we've also, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Lucy Etheridge, who's a consultant paediatrician also based in St. George's in London. Uh, good morning. Hello. Um, and we're going to talk uh, this morning about um, an, uh, an article that, that you uh, wrote together um, in the October edition of Archives of Disease in Childhood, in, in my favourite sort of section, which is Archimedes which, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is essentially posing uh, kind of a common clinical question that comes up and then sort of saying, well, OK, what's what's the evidence for, for this? Um, and this one caught my eye because it's something that I have to say I'd not encountered before, um, which is looking at does giving high-dose magnesium uh, supplementation, is it helpful in adolescents with migraine? Um, so, uh, Lucy, if I can start with you, you you're obviously a general paediatrician, so you'll see lots of children and, and young people with headaches. Um, yes. What's your kind of, uh, from a generalist's point of view, what's your general approach to sort of, uh, taking a history for, from from adolescents with headaches to determine if they've got a migraine or not. Yeah, so I have quite a big adolescent practice in my general paediatric clinic, and um, I was looking through my own clinic data and worked out that twenty five percent of what I see in my clinic is headache. So it was a big part of my practice, and you know I think I see lots and lots of different types of headache, um, and. And I think when evaluating headache, the the kind of the two main areas to think about really are the kind of the quality of the headache. So what what features are there, but also the impairment and and how much of an impact it's having on a young person's life. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's a really good, nice guideline that really helpfully splits out for you the features um, of tension headache and migraine, as well as cluster headache. And, you know, that's the kind of core document I go back to again and again when mm. I'm taking a history of somebody and, and, and relate the, kind of the features back to that. But I also see a lot of young people with a lot of impairment from their headache. And it's not always straightforward quite what the primary problem is. Okay. So I tend to, to see migraine um, as young people who have very episodic headache, so they might be completely well between, they get um, a very sort of acute, moderate to severe headache that really impairs them for a short period of time. Often unilateral, but not always, Um, kind of quite intense and throbbing in character. And and one of the main things really is the association with other symptoms, so mm. particularly nausea and vomiting, but also photophobia and phonophobia. And so the typical story would be 
um, you know, a young person who's absolutely fine and then they get this sudden intense headache and they have to go and lie down in a quiet, dark room. And a couple of hours later, they might feel a bit groggy, but they're kind of back to functioning. Um, and that's usually quite straightforward. But then I also see a group of young people who may have that headache, but in between, they have quite a lot of sort of persistent, low-level daily headache, lots of time missed off school, lots of kind of problems socialising or getting out with their friends. And, and, and that group are slightly more tricky to manage. Yeah, and, and sort of looking in the article, I didn't realise it was quite so common actually so yeah. I was saying 10% uh, of so migraine affecting up to 10% of kids 5 to 15 and 28% of 15 to 19 year olds so it's really common absolutely which totally fits with of course what I see in my clinic yeah. um, where you know 25% of what I see is headache um, usually you know from sort of about 9 10 up to 17 18 yeah. Um, so I, I guess, generally speaking, your approach to a history is is largely following nice guidance to determine, mm. does this seem to fit with with migraine or not? Um, and of course, one of the comments is that, that you can have it with and without an aura. Absolutely. And, it, you know, completely anecdotally, I would say more than half of the young people I see don't have an aura or they don't recognise an aura if, if they are having something some you know when you drill down on what's the first thing you notice you might get symptoms that feel like an aura but it's often quite rapid progression for them so they don't always recognize that yes so um when you've kind of said okay the the uh, this is what it sounds like in your examination i'm, I'm guessing you know it's mm -hmm. a very sort of general neurological examination um cardiovascular examination checking blood pressure those sorts of things is there anything in yeah. that you do or i mean apart from look at the fundi which is the only specific thing i do um you know really because obviously thinking about the nine inch cranial hypertension particularly in that group who have those sort of more persistent daily symptoms but that's still very unusual. That's not something I'll, I'll pick up an awful lot. Um, so a more sort of general examination, focusing on, on things that give you kind of bigger information like gait and blood pressure, for example, rather than, you know, the, the finer points of all the reflexes. Yeah. Um, and obviously in your history as well, really important to look out for red flags um, and always be thinking about secondary causes of headache rather than primary causes of headache. But again, the reality is those are few and far between. Yeah, and, and I guess that's where using something like HeadSmart as the, you know, I think a lot of the time for, I, I do a rapid access clinic, which sometimes has headaches. And I guess the, the question that we're being asked from, the, from, from primary care largely is, could the headache that this child's got be a brain tumour? Yeah, and that tends to be the worry of every parent coming into your consultation room as well, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, by the time they've sort of sought advice, particularly from a hospital for headache, what they're worried about is is a secondary cause, particularly brain tumour. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's an important part of the role of a paediatrician to directly acknowledge that um, and, you know, and address that and have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and sometimes sort of allaying those fears is kind of the biggest part in, of, the, of the management, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's, you know, where something like the NICE guidance does really help. Because if you can say, you know, look, these are the positive features of this diagnosis. This is what I think this is. Um, you know, that can be really helpful. So having kind of established, yeah, this seems to be the diagnosis for, from my perspective, um, sort of managing expectation 
Um, in terms of uh, sort of pharmacological treatment, do you, do you generally start with sort of simple analgesia and, and an explanation and, and take it from there? Or do you tend to start sort of something preventative as well? So I, I do take it in a stepwise approach. You know, in my experience, actually an awful lot of, of young people haven't really tried anything, even you know, by the time they get to hospital. They're not really sure what to do. They're not really sure if it's okay to take painkillers. Um, so, you know, I do often start very simple. You know, we'll, we'll talk about triggers. We'll always talk about sleep. We'll always talk about screen use. We'll always talk about fresh air and activity because those are such important factors. And, you know, uh, talk about sort of keeping a, a diary and trying to identify triggers. And I'll give good advice about how to use simple analgesia. Um, and I and I do often at that point, if I feel it's it's very much migraine, we'll start a triptan. Right. Um, and then I try and do a fairly quick review, often by telephone, actually, um, sort of six to eight weeks afterwards, so that we can go through all of that together and see, you know, whether there's been any impact of that treatment plan before then stepping up. OK. And, and I guess the next sort of step up is, is, I don't know what your first line preventative is, but something like Pizotifen, for example. So so I follow the NICE guidance personally and tend to use either Propanolol or Topiramate. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll tend to have that discussion at the first um, appointment if somebody is having very frequent headaches. Um, and, you know, in, in sort of young women who are 15, 16, I, I may go for propanolol more than to pyramate just because if it works and it's effective and it takes them through into their adult life, then yeah. we need to think about things like, you know, the teratogenic effects. Um, and the there's not an awful lot of evidence that I've been able to find for which is better than the other, but something that can help is family history. So I do have a few patients where there's a very clear family history of migraine and that usually the parent um, who has it has responded very well to one or the other of those medications, in which case I'll go for the same one. Um, And, you know, we're beginning to understand that there probably is a genetic um, link and, you know, some specific sort of, you know, receptor issues and things like that, that, um, that might affect uh, the illness. Yeah. So that's the sort of decision making I'll apply. I do tend to probably use more propanolol personally than to pyramate, but I, I don't think there's any great evidence behind that. That's just what I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if I can bring Julia in now. Um, so we, we've kind of looked at these and how did you get involved in in kind of writing this article? Were you, were you sort of sitting in on, on one of these headache type clinics? Um, no, so I'd initially done my SSC, so my student selected component with Dr. Etheridge, and she had sort of made me aware of the significant number of patients that attended her clinics were because of migraines. And so I thought, I have to admit, I started off from quite a low knowledge base, but I thought it'd be quite an interesting topic for me to delve deeper into and actually to see whether there was a use for magnesium for patients with migraines. Um, And also, this is one of the first times I've sort of written an article like this. So it was also quite a good learning curve for me as well. So that's sort of why I started. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really, it's really nicely written in that, you know, often these, these Archimedes articles starts with the the scenario. So the the scenario that you guys have written sort of says a 14 year old girl comes to outpatients with diagnosis of migraine without aura. Um, And a dad has read online. That's always a heart sink moment, isn't it? (laughs) Regular high dose magnesium supplements may be helpful to reduce frequency of migraine. 
Um, and that's not something I'd I'd come across at all. I have to say, I have to be very honest. Um, is that something that you'd heard of before you started writing this? Or? Yeah, so um, I hadn't actually heard of the use of magnesium with migraines, but I was aware sort of what a high proportion of adolescents suffer from migraines. And Dr. Etheridge made me aware that there is potentially a use of magnesium, I think from a neurologist she had been speaking to. Um, and so I thought I'd look a bit more about what evidence was out there and whether there was something to be said for it. Um, and yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so with that sort of uh, remit in mind, what did you do? How did you do it? Uh, and what sort of things did you find? Yeah, so I started off by doing a literature review um, and using basic search engines to see what was out there. Um, and then from that, once I had identified my studies, albeit a lack of studies, which mm. I can go on to a bit later on about some of the limitations, but I then thoroughly analysed them and then tried to relate it back to my clinical question, which was ultimately, does magnesium reduce the frequency and severity of migraines in an adult population? Um my clinical question actually posed me some difficulties when trying to draw conclusions because I actually found the majority of the studies out there, um, although there were a fair few, they tended to be on an adult population, mm. um, looking at adults who were suffering from migraines. And even of the studies that were looking at a paediatric population, actually I found it really hard to identify specifically the adolescent population. Normally the studies looked at the age range of sort of 3 to 17 um, rather than 10 to 17. So mm. I don't actually, looking back on it, perhaps my clinical question could have been adapted to a more general paediatric population, but I think that was an issue in itself. I couldn't identify specific studies um, for the adolescent age range. Yeah. So looking at your sort of search results, as you say, you kind of yeah. documented that you found kind of 64 results Um most of which, you know, were were adults, and and you you basically whittled it down to nine papers in detail, and then actually down to four, yeah, sort of included in the review. So so not a lot of evidence out there at all. No, and I think that was one of my main conclusions that there definitely needs to be a lot more randomised trials, and also not just more randomised trials, but more consistency among the trials, because actually there was a lack of consistency about the dosage, about the form of magnesium used, the route of administration. So I think um, if magnesium was to be used in standard practice for the treatment of migraines, then definitely more trials will need to be done for sure. Because hmm. um, I'd say that one of the things looking at those four papers is that, that it's often different types of magnesium used, different doses used, yeah, um, and with sort of different regimes, whether it's as well as paracetamol and ibuprofen or just magnesium on its own. Yeah. Um, but there is, I definitely think there is a lot to be said for the use of magnesium because there were definitely positive outcomes when magnesium was compared to placebo and there was shown to be a reduction in the severity and the frequency of migraines. Um, and actually there was even more positive effects when it was used as an adjunct to paracetamol and ibuprofen, um, where there was evidence that the magnesium potentially increases the, eff- the efficacy without necessarily affecting the toxicity um, along with fewer side effects. And that actually relates back to what Dr. Etheridge was just saying about um, how the side effects can impact um, on the patient's life. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for something that reduces the side effects. 
Hmm. Um, and then also actually one study, which wasn't necessarily, I didn't expect to come across this, um, but it looked at um, the use of magnesium. And although it reduced the frequency, it also looked at scores such as the quality of life, migraine disability and anxiety and depressive symptoms. And in all of those aspects, there were shown to be improvements. And talking about what Dr. Etheridge said about the impact on the adolescent's life, about missing school and all of that, I think there is a lot to be said. Although further trials need to be done, those sort of positive impacts I don't think should be overlooked. And there was um, magnesium sort of definitely has an impact in that sense. Yeah, because I guess the, the sort of... Um... I don't know, analogy you could draw is that, that, you know, when we sort of see kids who present with acute exacerbations of asthma, that's kind of one mm. marker of how good your asthma is. But actually, you may not see the, the child who's not being able to run around with their mates, do stuff at school, blah, blah, blah. Actually, yeah. that, that's poor control. And, and you, you, you know, this, the, the um, if you've got a sort of low-grade headache that's stopping you doing stuff, well, okay, it's not getting into the migraine I've got to go and lie down for hours and end. Um, mm. But it's still affecting your quality of life, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and in that particular study where they used magnesium, there were really positive effects with that. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, looking through them, they're not massive numbers, are they? No, definitely small sample size in lots of them as well. Um, and, and I guess it's tricky to sort of draw conclusions if you're using sort of different endpoints and different um, sort of uh, mixes of, of doses of magnesium, those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, the thing I'm re- really sort of that struck me that made me curious, and I, I do not know if you know this answer at all, was why people were measuring serum magnesium from various body fluids in these kids in the first place how did how did we come about with trying magnesium as opposed to i don't know calcium or phosphate or vitamin d or anything like that um, i have to profess i don't know the answer to no. that um but one of the limitations that um i did come across that tended to be in the majority of the studies i used was actually um they failed to measure the plasma magnesium in patients before they gave the magnesium and therefore it was actually quite unclear if the patients who had responded to the magnesium actually had deficiencies to start with Hmm. Um, so that was one of the limitations that actually cropped up in most of the studies that i found but as to why they were sort of identifying magnesium in the first place i'm not too sure no because it's sort of some of them had sort of suggested actually we've measured magnesium in um plasma and saliva and csf as well i think yeah um, it does have a role as a neurotransmitter um so there there is a recognized role of of the magnesium cation in something to do with membranes and neurons that's my general pediatrician's understanding of it so there was a sort of physiological basis for thinking that um increasing magnesium may help with sort of excitability and um, pathways so Julia, kind of having done this reading and study and obviously saying there are a lot of limitations to to these studies to draw real conclusions, if you were sitting down and facing this parent and and the the, the teenager and their question is, what do you think about magnesium? Having sort of read around this, what, what what, what do you think? Um, I would say there's definitely something to be said for the use of it. There's very low side. There's very few side effects. 
um, and there was sort of no negative um, impact of using magnesium. And so if it helps some people, then my impression would almost be, why not? Mm. Um, I suppose I can't really find a reason why you wouldn't use it, um, but... It, I wouldn't necessarily use it as the sole preventative or the sole treatment of magnesium. There's definitely a role for it as an adjunct along with other more commonly used drugs, I think. Yeah. And and Lucy, from your perspective, has, has sort of looking into this uh, with, with Julia, is this going to change your practice at all, do you think? So, I mean, this this patient was a real yeah. patient, but, but slightly changed because um, actually they, they sort of came along and I had never heard of it and had a chat with one of my uh, pediatric neurology colleagues who said, oh, yes, yes, you know, you can use magnesium. And I said, you know, really, what's the evidence? And she was like, well, there's some evidence. So, you know, that's sort of why Julia and I decided to go and try and find that evidence. Um, and I do get patients who come to my clinic every so often um, who have seen other people, um, mm. particularly, for example, alternative practitioners, um, who give them magnesium. Okay. Um, so, you know, what, what I tend to do now is I, I have it as a bit of a discussion along with the sleep and screen time and fresh air and vitamin mm. D and exercise and, and those sorts of things. I tend, you know, to say to people that um, there may be a role for magnesium, um, we don't know. We don't really have the evidence yet. And therefore, it's not something that I'm, I would prescribe. Mm. Um, but if you are interested in looking at alternative ways in which you can, you know, help manage your headache, because we know that management of headache is a multifactorial thing, um, then you may be interested in trying magnesium and you can, of course, buy it in health food shops. Um, so I haven't prescribed it yet to anybody, partly because actually it's really hard to prescribe right. um, because there's a number of different preparations. It's, it, you know, it's actually, it, it's not something you can just look up in the BNF and prescribe very easily. Um, but it is something that I will talk to people about as kind of part of a multifactorial headache management strategy. Perfect. Um, so that's really interesting. And I think, you know, we'll provoke hopefully further discussion and study. Um, Julia, from, from your perspective, then, as, as a sort of medical student getting something published in archives, um, how, how did you sort of find that experience? Is it something that you would encourage others to do? Yeah, definitely. I have to say it's probably the piece of work that I'm most proud of. I put a lot of work into it. And even the whole process of um, carrying out the literature review and facing all of the limitations that I came across. It was a really important um, and interesting learning curve. And now, although it took me a long time and a lot of work, um, it's definitely something I would recommend. Um, and, yeah, and also I read a few of the other Archimedes articles just to sort of see... Hmm sort of a blueprint or sort of what mine should be like and that in itself was really interesting because I learned lots about what the other articles are written about. Fantastic and anybody wanting to read the original article as I say it's in the October 2021 uh, edition of Archives of Disease in Childhood from the, from the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health in the Archimedes section. Um, so it just remains for me to say that Julia and Lucy thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to download our podcast this week. If you enjoy our podcasts, please tell your friends and colleagues and subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, our SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.